0: I thought by now they'd fall But you have never failed me yet Waiting for change to come Knowing the battles For you and never fail me yet. Your promise still stands, it is your faith. come to pass my heart will sing your praise again Jesus you're still enough keep me within your love my heart will sing praise again Your promise still stands
1: You for joining us by live stream, and for those of you that are participating in our service here, we appreciate you coming. Uh, just real quick, by way of note, I assume that you are aware, as a Coloradoian, Coloradian, Coloradan, Coloradan that our governor uh, did issue a new mandate on Friday. It went into effect on Friday, uh, Thursday night at midnight. And uh, that is regarding the wearing of masks. That in any public gathering, there needs we need to wear masks, and and so we're working through that. Uh, I don't want anybody who feels strongly about not wearing one to come, and then we would have to say something about it or whatever. And so it just it makes it difficult as people of faith and uh, church gathering and that kind of thing forced to have to deal with that that uh, situation. My encouragement would be, if you have difficulty wearing a mask or do not want to wear a mask, that you not return to public gathering and that we wait. And that way, uh, it won't put us in a spot of having to ask people to put one on that don't want to. And then it keeps everybody else uh, that does desire to wear one, keeps their conscience clear and uh, free from feeling like they might be in fear of contracting the virus. Um, I was going to say something else about that, but go ahead, honey.
2: Well, good morning. I got my mask here. We'll put it back on after after we speak here. Um, A few announcements. We're
1: together, by the way. We're husband and wife. So for you that may not know that are just tuning in,
2: the reason we're standing like this
1: is because we...
2: (laughs) Because we've been together for almost 43 (laughs) years.
1: We belong. We've been passing germs (laughs) to one another for a long time.
2: Hey, uh, so we want to remind you that we are out on Facebook. This should be streaming on Facebook right now. Or you, uh, I don't know, maybe that's where you're watching it. Uh, Please invite some folks to join you, let them know we're here, share the page, and uh, other folks can find out that Genesis is uh, live and this message that we're carrying can get out to more people. We'd love to share that. This morning is Communion Sunday. Uh, Go ahead and get your elements ready, whatever you would like to use uh, for the bread and the wine or the bread and the juice, And, and a little bit later we will celebrate Communion together Um, Guys gathering this Thursday night. I'm
1: so excited about this Uh, twice a month on Thursday we have this tremendous gathering via zoom of guys and uh, they're not all local some of them you know come from other states around the nation and we're just we're so excited about the conversation that ensues the things that we're talking about the challenge uh, to be better guys it is not a men's ministry it is not a Bible study it is a guys gathering what we talk about, what we share is private, and uh, just to that group. And um, I, I can say I've grown, and I've been challenged to be a better man, a better husband, a better better father, uh, and, and closer to the Father God as well because of these Zoom calls. So if you would like to join us, please let us know. You can go on the website and actually register and get the Zoom link. Or you can just send us an email or a text and say, hey, send me that Zoom link because we don't broadcast it like over Facebook. So you need to ask for it.
2: All right, great. We want to thank you all for your uh, continued giving and support. That is a tremendous blessing and help to us. And uh, if you aren't aware, you can give online through our website or you can text to give at 720. and of course if you're coming live to service here we have our offering basket in the back and we appreciate your ongoing giving and I would just like to take this moment also uh, whether or not any of the St. John's folks are listening or not we just want to thank St. John's they have been so good to us we've been um, meeting here at St. John's since last uh, July it's been a year.
1: Uh, it's amazing.
2: Yeah, yeah. it's been How a year. Quickly. It's been a year, and these last through several months. Through well, they've been good to us the entire time. Let me say, and been generous to us. But especially during this COVID time, when there has been a downturn financially, uh, St. John's has blessed us quite generously, and we are very grateful. Uh, it has definitely made a big difference. So I want to give a shout out to St. John's and uh, our gratefulness to them and uh, and to the the council here at St. John's who decides, makes that decision.
1: So just before our worship leaders come and lead us in worship, Matt and Lisa, I want to mention to you the book that I am teaching from and bring it to your attention. We'll show you uh, some advertisements here on on the screen as well. I am teaching from a book called A More Christ-like God by Brad Jerzak. And last week's message and today's message are specifically taken from chapters 12 and 13. Here are just a few um, endorsements that Brad has received for this book. You'll see them on the screen right now. You you, you might note that one of them is Eugene Peterson, um, just recently passed away, but tremendous author, pastor. He's the author behind the message translation of the Bible. And then many other who's who of uh, Christian leaders here. So it's, it's a tremendous book. Also, I am making available to you as a result of this series called Matineo, um, a document put out by Stephen, and I'm looking, I can't quite read it from here. Is it up here? Stephen, Stephen Morrison. Stephen Morrison, and my apologies. Stephen is a, a current author, writer, pastor, uh, theologian type. And he's uh, done an article called The Seven Theories of Atonement. We've made a copy of that. It's available to you. Let us know, write to us. Uh, let us know that you would like it. You can text us or email us during this message, and uh, we will get this document to you. To those that requested it last week, there was a, a correction needed, some formatting, where text, uh, uh, parts of the article, were not included. They got dropped out. And so um, I've already re it out to a couple of you that I knew of. But uh, if you've had any issue with that, with the formatting of the article, um, or would just like to receive it again, we have a corrected copy that we're sending out today.
2: I have one more thing this morning that's on my heart. Um, it doesn't go with your message, I don't think. But uh, it is just something. I was listening to Pastor Wes, as he was preaching this morning from St. John's Lutheran, and a good message this morning. Uh, we maybe will send it out to you all. Uh, I mean, he always has good messages. This one just particularly struck me. And it was
1: on Facebook, by the way, so you can go to our Facebook yes, page. Yes, you can go to our Facebook Same place you're watching this. You actually
2: can actually go to your Facebook page. Mine. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm, right. And you can see Pastor Wes's message from this morning. Um But he he made a statement that reminded me of something that I've been pondering a lot lately, considering all of the divisiveness going on in our country over just about any issue you can name. Anything somebody thinks, somebody else thinks the opposite, right? And I don't know which thinking you have of which thing. That's not the point. But as I've been pondering this the past weeks, because it is so disturbing to me, all this divisiveness, because, you know, divisiveness is not godly. Uh, The scripture, I have 15 Bible verses here talking about seeking and pursuing peace. Uh, One of them, Ephesians 4, 3, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And I really think that is where we should be as believers, that we should be pursuing a bond of peace. Um, And, you know, if we're going to be a Christian community that is setting an example. That is where we need to put on a spirit of humility, love, joy, peace, patience, meekness, Mm. kindness, gentleness. Really good, right? the fruit. The fruit of the spirit, right. None of that speaks of divisiveness, especially in the body of Christ, but even beyond. Um, And again, if you want a copy of these 15 scriptures, Text us, email us, I'll send them to you. You can't get away from the fact that we are to be diligent to pursue peace if possible. So far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. Um, On and on the scripture goes. Now, what Pastor West said this morning, I thought was really good as believers, that speaks of peace as believers. He said, you know, it's not our job to call people to be like us. Hmm. It's really our good. job to call them to follow Jesus. Really good. Can I, can I say that again? And thank you, Pastor Wes. It was so clear cut. It's not our job to call people to follow us or to act like us. I believe was the second thing he said. I need to go back and listen to that. But it's our job to call people to follow Jesus. Yes. Yeah. And yes. in the doing of that, there will be a lot of diversity. I'm so blessed by the unity of the spirit that Genesis and St. John's has. Um, we have different expressions of Christ. We discussed this with Pastor West quite a bit. We have different expressions of mm-hmm. Christ, but we are one in the spirit. We love each other. Right. We are supporting each other. Uh, we may not do everything like we may not believe it all just exactly alike. But the thing is is the it's not about calling people to do it like we do it. It's about calling people to follow Jesus. So I want to encourage you to put on a spirit of humility. Yeah. So be supportive, be peaceable in the decisions you make in the talk that you talk. and uh, let's encourage people to follow Jesus.
1: Amen. Really good. Thank you, honey. Well, our worship leaders are going to come now. This is Matt, my son-in-law, and my daughter, Lisa. And some of you are also not aware of that relationship. And so they will be standing close. And uh, sometimes we're closer than six feet, but that's family, okay? God bless you. Have a great time worshiping the Lord.
3: Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. Left my pick at the seat, so this wasn't going to work very well. We're so happy you're here with us. Uh, everybody, stand up and let's worship. Here I am. All my intentions, all my obsessions, I wanna lay them all down your hands only, only your love is vital though I'm not entitled still you call me your child God you don't, don't need me but somehow you want me oh how you love me somehow that frees me to hold my hands off of my life and the way it should go Oh God, you don't need me, somehow you want me, oh how you love me, somehow that frees me to open my hands up and give you control, I give you control, I want to give you control. I've had plans shattered and broken things I had hoped in they fall through my hands You have plans to redeem and restore me You're behind and before me Oh help me be god you don't need me but somehow you want me oh how you love me somehow that frees me to take my hands off of my life in the way it should go oh god you don't need me but somehow you want me oh how you love me somehow that frees me to open my hands up and give you control oh i give you Control. I want to give you control. Oh, I give you control. You one day, somehow, you want me. The King of Heaven wants me. So this world has lost its grip on me, you want me, somehow you want me, the King of Heaven wants me. So this world has lost its grip on me, oh God you don't need me, somehow you want me, oh how you love me, somehow that frees me to take my hands off of my life in the way it should go Oh God you don't need me but somehow you want me Oh how you love me Somehow that frees me to open my hands up and give you control Sing that again God you don't need me but somehow you want me Oh how you love me Somehow that frees me to take my hands off of my life In the way it should go Oh, God, you don't need me Somehow you want me Oh, how you love me Somehow that frees me to open my hands up And give you control Oh, I give you control I want to give you control I want to give you control Oh, I give you control. I'm caught up in your presence, I just want to sit here at your feet, I'm caught up in this holy moment, and I never want to leave. Oh, I'm not here for blessings Jesus, you don't owe me anything And more than anything that you can do I just want you I'm sorry When I've come gone through the motions I'm sorry When I just sang another song Take me back, back to where we started I open up my heart to you I'm sorry when I've come with my agenda, I'm sorry. When I forgot that you're enough take me back to where we started, I open up my heart to you. I'm caught up in your presence. I just want to sit here at your feet I'm caught up in this holy moment I never want to leave Oh, I'm not here for blessings Oh, Jesus, you don't owe me anything, and more than anything that you can do, I just want you. Oh, I just want you, and nothing else, nothing else. Nothing else will do, I just want you. And nothing else, nothing else, nothing else will do, I just want you. Nothing else, nothing else, Jesus, nothing else will do. I just want you. Nothing else. Nothing else. Nothing else will do. I just want you. Nothing else.
0: Nothing else,
3: Jesus. Nothing else will do. I just want you. Nothing else, nothing else, nothing else will do, I just want you. And nothing else, nothing else, Jesus, nothing else will do. caught up in your presence I just want to sit here at your feet I'm caught up in this holy moment and I never want to leave Oh, I'm not here for blessings Jesus, you don't owe me anything More More than than anything anything that you can do I just want you I'm caught up in your presence I just want to sit here at your feet. I'm caught up in this holy moment. And I never want to leave. Father, we thank you for holy moments, and we thank you for your presence. Whether we're aware of it or not, you're always there, Father, and we thank you for that. And we pray that we would never accept anything less than you, Father, anything that is a counterfeit, anything that brings us temporary joy, that we wouldn't accept those things, Father, that we would be drawn to you, and that we would just want you, Father.
1: Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. Excellent. I I just, I love the worship that you two are bringing, and uh, I hope that you are enjoying it as well. Let's be seated. We are in a series called Metaneo. Today we're going to talk about victory and justice, but I've subtitled it, God Kissed Humanity. God Kissed Humanity. We've been studying this word, Metaneo, because it means, it's a Greek word that means repentance. And there's a complete absence in the Greek word of any of the religious hyped emotion, grief, sorrow, pleading, tears that's generally associated with the word to repent. Repent of your sin. It's a compound word that comes from two words. Number one, meaning together with, meta, and neo, the mind. Together with the mind or together in mind. It means to be one with God's mind to be together with God's mind to realize God's thoughts towards us Paul said in Romans chapter 2 that it is the goodness of God that leads man to repentance not as anger not as wrath but as goodness so we need to repent about God not to God about God what we've been believing about God we need, we, we need repentance about the way we think about God, and that's what metaneo means. Now, in our study, we've come to the place of talking about victory and justice, and we're going to entertain two of the most beautiful, actually three of the most powerful atonement theories that uh, have ever affected the church or that the church believes in and just before we do I want to show you a quick video would you look at this with me this is a video of a sculpture over in Europe Now, the, the video's uh, on the desktop, it's an MP4. I really want people to see this, so go out to your desktop, please. Not a problem. Well, so, while they are finding that, I think it, it, it makes such a beautiful point. Uh, this, this video was shot of a European sculpture that was done. It's probably like in France or in Italy, and it, it's just the most powerful presentation of of the idea of our perception and how that we have misperceptions based on the things that we've learned the things that we've been taught the people that we are around so on and so forth I know many of the things that I was taught about God taught about the atonement and the cross and the resurrection and and sin itself uh, come from a skewed and and unfortunate understanding Of these theories that we're going to talk about today. Watch this video for me. Now, isn't that just one of the most incredible things you've ever seen? <laughs> I, I, I just love that little clip. So with that then, and as a result of that, I want to ask you four questions and ask you to entertain these today. Number one, is it possible that our perspective of how Jesus saves us has been wrong? Second question, is it possible that the dominant view of Christ's atonement Held by an overwhelming majority of Western evangelicals, has misled believers into developing or in developing their view of God. Question number three: Is it possible that a skewed belief system, predicted or pre, excuse me, predicated on man-made theories, has kept us from fully enjoying intimacy with God and a rich? Walk of faith. Is that possible? Is it possible that our belief system has been skewed? Is it possible that what we believe about God and salvation and sin and these cardinal doctrines and very important theology, all in the Bible, is it possible that what we believe about those things is predicated upon man made theories and not the gospel? not the words of Jesus, not the Gospel of Paul. Is it possible? Well is it possible that a a sculpture that begins, starts out looking like a giraffe? If you just, help me out cameraman, you're gonna have to follow me on some of this aren't you? (laughs) If you go over here and look at the exact same sculpture, sculpture, it hasn't been touched, hasn't been moved, hasn't been changed, it's the same and there's an important teaching. The Word of God is the same. It hasn't changed since God delivered it through the holy prophets and men of old who were inspired, and it was breathed out by the Holy Spirit. But men, we've got our perspective messed up because of where we're standing. So is it possible that if I move, is it possible that if I change my perspective, I might see something different? in something age-old and formally believed to be absolutely true, unchangeable, until I move, until I repent. And number four, question number four. Is it, therefore, an unfortunate reality that these beliefs have kept us from introducing more of our friends, more of our family members, more of our acquaintances to the life-transforming relationship that they could have with Jesus and His church. I submit to you that these belief systems built on man-made atonement theories are the reason why many people in society today, people you know, refuse to go to church and have reneged on their commitments of faith. You see, it's God's dream, in fact, the desire of the Trinity. Before earth's foundation and before man was created, was to have intimacy and oneness with humanity. God said, make man in our image. Jesus wrote, so that you might have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. Then he said in his priestly prayer in John chapter 17, that they may all be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us. And watch this, that the world might believe that you sent me. It's no accident that hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people in America have rejected faith in Christ, have rejected the church, the modern church, modern evangelical church of today here in America because of, the, because of what they see in us. That actually isn't the Scripture, isn't the Gospel. Let's talk about two dominant atonement theories that drive these evangelical beliefs that we've had wrong. And again, I'm going to encourage you to please ask for The Seven Theories of Atonement by Stephen Morrison as a handout. All right? Text us, write to us, let us know that you want that document. It's a great companion document to what I'm teaching. Man-made means of trying to understand the mystery of Christ's death never work. Replacing the actual gospel story of Christ's death with man-made theories is why we're in the predicament that we are. Now these two dominant theories that I'm speaking of that have been pervasive in Western evangelicalism are number one penal substitution and secondly the satisfaction theory. Now by far the most persuasive common theory in American evangelicalism is penal substitution. But let's first deal with the satisfaction theory. The satisfaction theory of atonement, now by the way, the word atonement, it's a biblical word, scriptural word, beautiful word, beautiful Christian word, beautiful theology behind it, simply means at one at one with God. How is it that God brought humanity into oneness with Himself? That's what we're studying here. And boy, do we need to repent about the way we think about God and how he brought at one meant about. There's a theory called satisfaction theory that only came into being in the 1200s. So a thousand years of church history had passed and they never believed this prevalent atonement theory called satisfaction theory. It came in the 12th century from Anselm of Canterbury. He proposed it. In a nutshell, it goes this way. Christ's death satisfies the justice of God. It deals with restitution, paying back a debt. It emphasizes the justice of God and claims that sin is an injustice and that those records got to be balanced out. It's like a spreadsheet or like an accounting ledger. Got to balance it out. You have done wrongly. You have sinned. And that has to be balanced out somehow. Anselm's satisfaction theory says, essentially, that Jesus Christ died in order to pay back the injustice of human sin and to satisfy the justice of God. In other words, our debt of sin had to be paid for. Our injustices have stolen from the justice of God. They've hurt God. They've made God mad. And now God has to be paid back. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) I've learned that all my life. That's what I grew up with in Sunday school. That's what I was taught in Bible college. Furthermore, satisfaction theory then supposes that Jesus Christ pays God back by his death on the cross. That's what this theory purports and espouses. Now, there's a second theory akin to this that borrows from it that, once again, is pervasive in the American culture and American church. It's called penal substitution. Now, this theory is even more recent than the theory of satisfaction. This theory was developed during the Reformation, especially by John Calvin, who was a lawyer. He added a more legal or forensic framework to the theory of satisfaction. Now, in a nutshell, this this, uh, theory goes like this. Jesus Christ dies to satisfy God's wrath against human sin. Jesus is punished, that's the penal part, in place of sinners, that's the substitution part, in order to satisfy the justice of God and the legal demand that God has upon our lives and in the universe to punish sin. God has to punish sin. God's a legal God, God's a wrathful God, God's a a God of justice, and so God exacts punishment for sin. And so Jesus then steps in as God the Son and pays that penalty. In light of Jesus' death, God can now forgive the sinner because Jesus Christ has been punished in the place of the sinner in this way, meeting the the retributive requirements of God's justice. This legal balancing of ledgers is at the heart of this theory, which claims that Jesus died for legal satisfaction. When we talk about the satisfaction theory, it leads us to penal substitution. When you talk about penal substitution, it's impossible to leave out the satisfaction theory. The penal substitution theory, a more recent theory, comes on the back of and tweaking the substitution theory. Now, I'm going to give you an example of an American church and an American pastor that teaches and believes the substitution Theory and the penal theory however now I I knew that generally speaking about this individual but I was aghast when just yesterday while studying and finishing my notes I ran across this video now we're we're not going to play the video for you I don't I don't desire to do that I I made a clip of it I I decided I'm not going to do that in fact I'm not even going to mention the brother's name I, I have I have no desire to run somebody down or to pit myself against or do a comparison. I love this brother. I have the highest respect for this brother and his church. And the hundreds, probably hundreds of thousands, but many thousands of people that have come to Jesus Christ during uh, the decades of uh, ministry that this individual has done. However, when I heard him say this just one month ago in a public service in his church, it was recorded, When I heard him say it this way, I just, I had to sit back in my seat. I was aghast at the depth and the level to which substitution and penal substitution theories have gone in their retributive nature and what they assign to God. Listen to this, and I quote, There's one thing that equals the love of God and you must never forget this and boy he was preaching and he was emphatic it's the wrath of God it's the wrath of God he said repeating it God loved Israel but when Israel broke the law of God read the discipline that he put them through it will break your heart in quote now is that amazing or what there is one thing that's equal to the love of God, and don't you dare forget it, the wrath of God. Oh my goodness. Now he offered no scriptural support for that because you can't find any scriptural support for that. Now what you you have in penal substitution, which is a theory, you have a lot of support for that. John Calvin preached that. And he's the one behind penal substitution. But keep in mind, this is is a recent theory as the world turns. 1600s, John Calvin was a lawyer and, and, and brought to bear this teaching, this legal teaching of the atonement of Christ. Now, here's a much more sound mind commenting here. This is from Brian Zahn, somebody who I appreciate very much. In fact, he wrote the book Sinners in the Hand, hands of a loving God. Now, Jonathan Edwards was the one who preached the great sermon, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. Everybody who's ever been to Bible school or Bible college knows about that sermon. It is studied. It is studied and upheld, and it's in books as one of the finest sermons ever preached by anybody. And and so, along with all the other curricula that are in the Bible colleges here in America, Jonathan Edwards' sermon about wrath and punishment is held up as the thing to believe, the thing to teach about God's nature. Now, I love what Brian says. So he, and, and so uh, Jonathan Edwards wrote the book, not only preached the sermon, but then wrote the book, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And, and, and it is an unfortunate uh, book, I must say. It is, uh, it is a picture of God, that is completely in keeping here with penal substitution and satisfaction theory. Brian came out with a book addressing and answering Jonathan Edwards' book. Brian's book, once again, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. Here's one of his quotes of recent, he said, The Limits of God's Mercy in Genesis 18, you'll remember that's where Abraham was... Standing in intercession before God, the judgment was coming upon Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham was interceding and said, God, you won't let the city be destroyed if there's, and I forget where he started, I think 50 righteous, maybe 100 righteous. And then he kept working it down, 100 righteous, 50 righteous. What if there's 30 righteous? What if there's 20 righteous? Okay, okay. If you remember that story, the limits of God's mercy in Genesis 18 for the sake of 10, quote, were not set by God, but by how merciful Abraham could imagine God to be. Great statement about God's nature. So in now comes, and we introduce to you, Christus Victor. Christus Victor stands in sharp contrast to penal substitution, addressing it head on and saying, That is not our God. That is not, penal substitution is not a picture of our God. And while penal substitution is the most widely believed, widely held theory on atonement in the church today here in America, it's wrong. It was not believed by the puristic fathers, patristic fathers. It was not believed or taught for the first 1,000 years, over 1,000 years of the church of Jesus Christ. On the other hand, this theory called Christus Victor was, and I, I'm, I'm subtitling this, God kisses mankind and says, I love you, I'll take care of this. Christus Victor, I'll take care of this. Now there's three words that characterize God's atonement. And we're not talking about this theory, okay? We're talking about Bible, the Bible or the gospel preaching of atonement. What did Jesus say about atonement? What did Paul say about atonement? Right? So not a theory. Three words characterize the New Testament idea of atonement, atonement. Number one, the cross. Jesus' cross. There's no arguing here. Jesus died on a cross. And why? Colossians chapter 2, verses th- 13 through 15. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us of all of our sins. Watch this. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in the cross. Now, how are we to understand that scripture in light of the prevailing atonement theory of penal substitution? Well, let's reverse back through it and read it this way, all right? number one who does Jesus defeat the powers and authorities how does he defeat them by disarming them what weapons did he take from them the legal charges and debts held against them how did he disarm them of these charges and debts by canceling them how did he cancel them by forgiving all of our sins the result God made us alive together with Christ and raised us to sit with him. Now, this theory of atonement is more like the gospel. This is what Paul preached. This is what Jesus talked about when he talked about going to the cross. And notice how that it especially symbolizes forgiveness and defeating the enemy. It does not put an emphasis on sin. It doesn't even mention the wrath of God, the justice of God, that God is an angry God, that He's a legal God, He's requiring atonement, He's requiring payback, He's retributive, and so He requires a retributive response, a substitution. Doesn't even talk about that. And again, I want to underscore, this is... The gospel, and this is the atonement view that the patristic fathers had. Those who immediately followed Christ as apostles and taught and raised up a brand new church and those who came after those men. So we're talking about, when we say patristic, patristic fathers, we're talking about the first 200 years primarily following the death of Christ. So this is, this is very recent. Remember that the substitution theory that we presented a little bit earlier, satisfaction, excuse me, satisfaction theory, dates to the 1200s. 1200 years later, after the gospel of Christ's preached. 1200 years after the death of the apostles. 1200 years after, well, a thousand years, after the patristic fathers had written. Penal substitution came about in the 1600s, right? By Jonathan Edwards and John Calvin. All right? So Christus Victor is the view of atonement that was preached by the patristic fathers and that the New Testament gospel of Jesus Christ leads us to and preaches. All right? Now we talked about the cross. Here's the second word that you need to know that's included in our view of atonement. Resurrection. All right? It's without argument that Christ was raised from the dead. All the theories, and there are seven of them, all of the theories believe that. But here's what Paul said regarding the resurrection of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 21 and 23. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, as in Adam all die. How many die in Adam? How many die in Adam? Now, does that leave anybody out? Could we use the word humanity? Because of Adam, all humanity became subject to death, became subject to the force of sin. All right. As in Adam, all die. Watch this. So in Christ, all will be made alive. I never learned that in Bible school. I didn't learn it in Sunday school. I wasn't taught it when I was being told about penal substitution and trained in, in the retributive nature of God. That being primarily the satisfaction theory, right? And penal substitution, both actually. How about this one? Verse 24 of the same chapter, 1 Corinthians 15. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. It sounds like forgiveness and victory. Sounds like God does something because he loves us, not because he's exacting a retributive justice based on a legal theory of who he is. The final word here of the three that really speak of this great atonement and this great view, Christus victor, is resurrection, or excuse me, love. Love. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. You know it, for God so loved the world, right? That He gave His own, one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish. God loved the world. He's not angry at the world. And so what was God's plan for addressing the sin of the world? To love them by self-giving. So He gave His Son. This is not retributive justice. This is not an angry God getting ready. And what you don't know about that little quote that I gave you from the minister a few minutes ago that I read where he said, there is one thing equal to the love of God, the wrath of God. What you don't know is that's a paragraph out of a 28-minute sermon where this preacher just absolutely rails on the sin of America and the judgment that God is going to mete out to sinners and to America for our sin. I simply submit to you that that is not God. That is not the God I know. That's not the Jesus I know. In fact, God looks like Jesus. He has always looked like Jesus. There's never been a time where God didn't look like Jesus. Now, we haven't always known that, but now we do. God looks like Jesus, not like penal substitution, not like the legal theory that John Calvin foisted upon the church back in the 1600s. Romans chapter 8. You know it well. You've heard it many times. I'm going to take verses 31 through 39 and edit them a little bit, not to change their meaning, but because it's a long passage, And I'm going to bring you now verses put together so we can keep it a little bit shorter without changing the meeting. Here we go, Romans chapter 8. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us. It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who's going to separate us from this crazy love of Christ? Who's going to separate you from the magnificent love of Jesus? Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, this is called the cross-shaped love, the cruciform love of God. When I say cruciform, I'm talking about the self-giving love love of God God's response to man's failure is not justice it's not a legal system of repentance and having to go through a list of moral behavior change that is not God's love God's love says I forgive you I'm chasing you I'm going to find you I'm going to get in front of you and I want you to know something I offered myself as a ransom to rescue you from the condition that you were in. I don't hate you. I'm not mad at you. I'm not waiting to send you to hell or anybody you know. Anybody you know, regardless of whether they believe on me, I didn't do this because you believed on me. I did this because I believe in you. Did you hear me? God did not send His Son as an offering for sin and forgive the entire world. God didn't do that because you and I believe it. He did that because He believes in you. He did it by faith. Knowing, knowing that His love, it's the goodness of God that leads man to repentance. Hallelujah. Oh, I'd just love to get an amen in there somewhere. I know we don't have the whole group here, but come on, shout it out where you are, where you're watching or listening. Ha <laughs> ha. All right, so let's talk then about this final aspect of victory and justification, and what God did in the cross of Jesus Christ. Justification. I, I call it, God kisses all humanity. The word justification is a Greek word. It, it, it's spelled, or excuse me, it's pronounced diaknos or diakos. The biblical meaning of this word, diakios, is our standing before God. I know my wife laughs. She does this. I'll hear about it later after the sermon. You said that word about three or four different ways. <laughs> Which way are we supposed to? <laughs> well, I'm I'm not a Greek scholar now. I have a friend who's a a Greek and Hebrew scholar, but he's not here and he's not preaching. You'll have to tune in his live stream, okay? (laughs) All right. So the biblical meaning of justification to be justified—that Greek word means our standing before God. Now Paul made it very clear in Romans chapter three, verse ten: There is none righteous, no, not one. In Romans chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Isn't that true? Isn't that our status before God, before Christ? We're guilty. All have sinned. All come short of God's glory and God's purpose. But then God, but then God kissed humanity. Then God sent Jesus. And here's what Paul says or writes In Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. Long passage, we'll have it uh, for you over my shoulder here. Read with me. But now apart from the law of righteousness of God has been made known, excuse me. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. To which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ, or, more correctly translated, through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to all who believe. You see, it's not even your faithfulness. It's not your faithfulness to come to church. It's not your faithfulness to read the Bible. It's not your faithfulness to join the choir. It's not your faithfulness to live to a certain moral standard. It's not your faithfulness in any of those things that caused God to give you and make you righteous before Him. It is Jesus' faithfulness. It's what Jesus did for me when He died and hung on a cross and went into the grave and then was resurrected. Thank God it doesn't depend on me. Thank God right standing with God, with the Father, doesn't depend on me. It's based on what Jesus did. This righteousness is given through faith. In Jesus Christ, because of His faithfulness to all who believe. Watch this: there is no difference between Jew or Gentile. God doesn't care what race you are, what community you come from, what your age group is, whether you're white, black, yellow, brown, or any color. He doesn't care what your socio-economic status is. All right, who you were born to, who your parents are—none of that matters. God cares about those things. But none of that makes any difference in terms of how he approached you and made available this tremendous righteousness of Christ. There is no difference between Jew or Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24. And all are justified freely by his grace. All are, would you read it out loud with me? All are justified freely. Say it again. All are justified freely. How are we justified? By what? Oh, I thought I had to change things. I thought I had to repent of my sin. I thought I had to go through a system of feeling sorrow and unworthy and guilty and shameful until I got on my knees and cried out to God and just promised Him I was never going to do those things again. How many of you have gotten saved? More than once. (laughs) I mean, back when you used to... How many of you ran to the altar several times over the life of your your journey of your faith walk, right? Trying to get saved again. Trying to tell God you're sorry. Telling God you'll never do it again. And none of that is the Greek word for repent. metanoia. None of it. And none of it is required in the atonement of Jesus Christ. None of it demonstrates God's atonement. Verse 25. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate His righteousness. Why did He do it this way? Why did He send His Son? Why does does it not depend upon you and your moral behavior? Why does it not require any do-it-yourself religion or actions from us? Because He did it to demonstrate His own righteousness. Because in His forbearance, He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate His righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus or the faithfulness of Jesus. Now, notice something here. I have had people tell me, now, you know, there's more than just the love of God, Jeff. There's the wrath of God. And Jeff, what about the justice of God? God demands... God requires justice. He's a holy God. Now, wait a minute. Paul said God's justice is to do what he wants to do the way that he does it. And he thinks it's justice to just forgive you and me independent of our actions. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness so as to be just and the one who justifies. God can choose to forgive you in the way he wants to. God justifies you because he's just. (laughs) I've never heard that before. In all this time, it was right here in the Bible. All right, so we got a slide on this. Jeff, I want you to be sure it gets up here. Here we go. Ready? Rather than giving us over to wrath, God gives us over to Jesus. We are justified by Jesus and in Jesus. How is God able to freely justify the unjust? And still remain just? Because we're told in 1 Peter chapter 3, Christ died for us. The just for the unjust. And so what you have to understand here is the biblical concept of shedding of blood or sacrifice. It's not a legal system as we've been taught. Jesus, Jesus' blood, it represents his life. Jesus' life was given in death. It's an actual sacrifice. No metaphor here. All right? No theory here. Jesus gave his life, shed his blood. And the meaning is very simple. We find it in 1 John chapter 3, and verse 16. No one lays down his life for another unless he loves him. Laying one's life down for somebody else. Well, our firemen do that. Our policemen do that. Martyrs have done that for the gospel. War heroes have done that. Why? Because the government's angry? Why? Because why does a fireman save somebody? Why does a fireman rush into a burning house and sacrifice his life and pour out his oftentimes blood? Because he wants to rescue, because he loves, because he values human life. Not because the human life inside that burning house has done everything right. Not because they're worthy in and of themselves because You know, they had gone through this system of religious belief and faith and going to church and praying and all of that. A fireman does it just because. He's just and he loves and he sacrifices his uh, life. That's why Jesus did it. Notice that this type of sacrifice has nothing to do with punishment. I'm talking about the biblical concept of laying your life down and shedding your blood, which is exactly what Jesus did. It has nothing to do with punishment, payment, retribution, or appeasement. In every case, whether it's a fireman, whether it's a martyr, whether it's a policeman, whether it's a war hero, or whether it's Jesus Christ, in every case, a life is given for the sake of another, not to satisfy somebody's wrath, not to placate their anger, but as a life-giving, life-saving sacrifice. How does Jesus save us? Very simple. He conquered death by death. He reigns by love. Christ's decisive victory over Satan, sin, and death is Christus victor. Christ conquered death by dying. He reigns by love, not anger, not wrath, not punishment, not the threat of punishment as this preacher on television was saying when he said there is one only one thing equal to the love of God, the wrath of God. No! Absolutely not. I deny that. I refuse that. There's five key words now as we... uh, Let's close. We're going to close with these five key words describing how Christ died. Number one, cruciform, which means that the entire Trinity gave themselves, poured out themselves on the cross. Number two, representation. Christ died not only for us, but He died out as us. When Christ was hanging there on the cross, that was me on the cross. Number three, identification. He embraced and assumed every aspect of human nature so that Paul said about him, his own son, God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and condemned sin in his flesh. Why did Jesus have to die? So that sin could be condemned in the flesh not because god was mad not because god was looking for a legal retributive answer or substitution christ did not pay for your sin christ did not endure the wrath of god because of your sin he did not he gave himself in love in the same way that a policeman a fireman a war hero does just because of justice just because of love, they pour out their blood. Number four, substitution. Keep in mind John, John Calvin here. Christ's substitution is the incomprehensible vengeance. Here's what John Calvin said Christ's substitution is the quote, incomprehensible vengeance which he suffered at the hand of God. Dear ones, that does violence to the Trinitarian doctrine and theology that we find in our Bible. It severs the Godhead so that you have Jesus the Son dying, but God the Father turning His back on Jesus and requiring a retributive payment because God's a wrathful God. He's a just God. He requires it. Calvin's motto rends the Trinity on Good Friday into Father wrath against Son mercy. It's very sad. It's very sad that 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 theory has become so pervasive in the evangelical church, and it's not taught in the Bible. This has become my life verse. I'm going to share it with you now, and we're going to move on to communion. This has become my life's verse. So speaks to this issue of God's love. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19, we'll have it on the screen. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself. In Christ, God was reconciling not just church attenders, not just good Christians that pray. God was, in Christ, reconciling the whole world to Himself. Watch this. Not counting their trespasses against them. we can retain a biblical form of substitution if we ask ourselves simply one question. Did Jesus do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves? Yes. But here's where we draw the line. Okay? If we're going to use that word substitution in referring to what Christ did and how He died for us, substitution must never be divorced from identification. And substitution must never lapse into appeasement of God's wrath. Aren't you glad this morning that Jesus became a curse so that we could become blessed? Aren't you glad this morning that Jesus takes our hell and gives us his heaven? Come on, church. Aren't you glad this morning? that He participates in human nature so that we can participate in His divine nature? Aren't you glad this morning that Christ participated as us and in Him He took us in our brokenness and He sacrificed His own life, spilt His own blood, that you and I might be born again and become one with our heavenly father and Jesus Christ Brad Jerzak, again who wrote the great book a more Christlike god whose book i've been teaching from said and i quote and we finish he calls it the unwrapping the unwrapping of god listen Quote, yes, every human being on the planet was destined for wrath. Wrath not as the vengeance of an angry God, but as the process of perishing under the curse and decay of sin. And what did God do? He unwrathed us. He freed us from sin slavery. And he unwrapped us from death. How? By wrathing Jesus in our place? No by becoming one of us, and as Jesus overcoming wrath in His mercy. God didn't pour out on Jesus wrath. That is not God. And that would divide the Trinity. God was there dying on the cross in cruciform love for the entire world, not counting their sins against them. So, as you grab your communion elements now, please, go ahead. Get your communion elements. Prepare them. We're going to receive communion now. And everybody here in the facility, if you would, we have communion, a self-contained communion cup and bread for you. You peel back the layer on top. With my thumbs, you peel back the little layer on top to expose the bread. And then you peel it back a second time to get to the juice. Would all of you like to come? And where you are right now, if you would, get your cup, get your bread, and let's take communion together. Everybody, go ahead and come and take one of the cups. Jeff, would you please prepare something great that uh, we could leave on? Have that ready, all right? Have it ready and ready to go that we can uh, play as we wrap up our communion. The body and the blood. Jesus gave it not to appease a wrathful God, but in cruciform love to offer the sacrifice that would rescue us and reconcile us. Say it. Rescue us. Reconcile us. What did Christ do? He rescued us and He reconciled us. So as we take the bread... We are rescued. Let's drink, uh, eat. And prepare your cup. And by drinking of the cup, everyone, you are declaring, I have been made one with my heavenly Father. I and my Father are one. Jesus prayed that in his priestly prayer. Father, make them one as we are one. So as we drink now, we're declaring, no more issue of sin, no more judgment. I'm reconciled. I'm rescued. I am one with God. Say, Jeff, you don't know some of the things I've done just this past week. No, but God does. And He took them all. Addressed them already. Put them in the blood of Christ. Washed them away. And you are free and reconciled. Let's take at one with God. Go ahead, Jeff. My dear brothers and sisters, until we see you next week, God bless you. Have a great week. We love you. Thank you for being here, those of you that attended in person. And uh, please, write to us for this document that we've offered you about the seven atonement theories. Let's go.